when Cindy and I were about three years into our marriage and moved to the Philippines to minister at Grace, uh, we each uh, in our apartment had a closet for our clothes. One closet was for me and my clothes, and one closet was for Cindy and her clothes. Fast forward more than a decade, somehow she now owns about half of my closet in addition to hers. Once I was looking for a particular shirt, I asked her where that shirt was. She said, oh, I I packed it away because there was no more space for my clothes in your closet. So I realized that this was a losing battle. Uh, And so at the last garage sale of the church, I sat down to downsize uh, to get rid of some of my clothes that I really wasn't wearing for the love of my wife to give her more closet space. And you know how it is. You have a lot of clothes that you don't really wear. And these are clothes that I've saved up uh, that fit me when I was about 30 pounds lighter. And I've kept those clothes because I thought one day, someday, I would lose weight and be able to fit those clothes again. Why waste such good clothes? I hadn't worn those clothes in 10 years. And so, you know how it is. Uh, You reluctantly have to let it go because I didn't realize how hard it was to give up that which you part with uh, that have memories attached to it, dreams and hopes of being thinner attached uh, to those clothes. And although it was difficult at first, Somehow, not having them around is quite freeing. It certainly freed up the closet, but somehow the process was very freeing in simplifying my closet. But you know, putting it into a spiritual context, when you read the Bible, it's very clear that God often reminds us, His children, that this present life is not our final destination. We're simply strangers and pilgrims and wanderers in this land. And therefore, as people who are temporarily living in this land, then we should not be accumulating too many things. We should not be digging roots so deeply that when the Lord calls us to move, we can't move. And the reason many Christians aren't aren't able to do more for Jesus, aren't able to move, is because we are so weighed down by all the useless baggage we have accumulated through life. The baggage of prosperity, the baggage of possessions, the baggage of positions, the baggage of promises, the baggage of pride, the baggage of property, all of which we are not willing to part with, and therefore we find it very difficult to do what God has called us to do. The spiritual discipline of living simply, or the discipline of simplicity, reminds us very vividly that we are not to set roots here on earth because we are to live for eternity. But unfortunately, in this day and age, we don't really practice a life of simplicity. We practice a life of complexity. In fact, this also works its way into the church. In A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God, he writes these words, every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexities. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead are programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. He writes, the shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and that servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional method all testify that we, 
in this day know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. You see, because we do not practice the spiritual discipline of living simply or simplicity, we have made life very complex. And in the complexities of life, with all that possessions and property and positions bring, then we have forgotten what it means to live for Jesus. We want to look this morning at the spiritual discipline of simplicity as we continue our sermon series entitled, Not First, Practicing Daily Spiritual Disciplines to Remind Myself of My Place in This World. And so, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we will exposit verses 6 to 19. Here in these verses, we will take a look at four principles and then four questions. And as we talk about the spiritual discipline of simplicity, you will be surprised to know it doesn't necessarily deal with physical things, but it's more of an attitude because you may be worried this morning after this sermon, I may feel compelled to have to give away everything. That's not the point. As you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, we want to be reminded that 1 and 2 Timothy are letters written by the Apostle Paul to his protege Timothy, who was a young pastor, pastoring a church. In these letters, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is dispensing godly advice. And he does so beginning in verse 6. Look with me. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul begins this section by talking about a virtue which is been forgotten in our generation, the idea of contentment, the idea of being satisfied with what we have. He says that having a godly life, the spiritual pursuit of a godly life, which the Bible talks about throughout the Scriptures, coupled with an attitude of contentment, is something highly valuable, something that we should pursue. Now, we know about the pursuit of godliness, but why coupled with contentment? Why the need to be satisfied with our lot in life. Because discontentment, the opposite of contentment, leads people to very dark places in their life. It causes people to sin. Think about someone who's not content in their marriage. Think about someone who is unhappy in the relationships that they have. Think about people who do not enjoy the jobs that God has given them. Think about those who are not content with the children that God has blessed them with or children who are not appreciative of the parents that God has given them. Think about the many who are not, who are not content with their positions and their profession. Think about those who are not content with how much money they have even though they should. Discontentment will lead men and women to very dark places in their hearts, to do things and to think things they shouldn't. People who are discontent with life's situation will often sin to get what they want. They are unhappy with their wife, so they will look for another woman. They are discontent with their husband, so they will look for another man. They are unhappy with the money that they have, wanting a different lifestyle, so they will steal and embezzle, or at least consider it. They are not happy with their position at work, 
And so they will begin to take advantage of others to get on top. That is why we need to practice contentment in our life. And we do so by living simply. You see, here's the first principle if you're taking notes, number one. Simplicity is about contentment. Simplicity, living simply, is about being content. You see, the practice of simplicity is not a practice for the sake of being simple. Simplicity is not trying to be a minimalist. In the spiritual context, simplicity is to cultivate an attitude of contentment. Now, this is not a call to live in mediocrity. This is not a call to celebrate laziness. This is not a call to affirm a lack of motivation. We are told in Scripture that we are to do everything for the glory of God. That means we are to give of our best. That's why we are to do our best with excellence. And so by contentment in this context, it means that we are satisfied and are to submit to God's sovereign plan for our life after we have given our best and given our all. And living simply helps us remain satisfied, content with what life brings to us. The second principle, verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Here there is a truth to remind us for why we should live simply. We came into the world with nothing. We leave this world with nothing. Now many of us know this truth. But although we may know this truth in our heads, we don't live our lives like we really believe this truth. Because if this is really the truth that we hold on to, it is a wonderment why we pursue what we pursue. It must be the greatest irony knowing that we leave with nothing, that we live this life trying to accumulate everything. You know, every time we visit a museum with an old artifact, it should be a vivid reminder that these are things that we cannot take with us when we die. When we think about the terracotta warriors of Xi'an or the Egyptian treasures that come out of the tombs of the pharaohs, we can see visibly that they were not able to take those things which they thought they could take with them. In fact, you could say that the tomb robbers, the tomb thieves, were a lot smarter than the people who lived in those days because they would risk life just to try to gain these treasures, knowing that they would be there. These tombs often robbed less than a year into the burial. In these past 12 months, three business tycoons in the Philippines, we call them taipans, have passed away. All of them could not take their billions with them. And that is what makes us equal with them. Rich or poor, the Bible says very clearly in verse 7, we carry nothing out when this life ends. And here's truth number two, principle number two, a truth to remember to live simply. You come with nothing, you leave with nothing. So with nothing bookending our life, should that change your perspective and how you live this life? Knowing that you can't take a single thing with you, does that change your perspective? You see, as someone says, the discipline of simplicity is the conscious act of not being tied to the things of the world. The reason we practice simple living is a conscious reminder that there is nothing in this world that we should be tied down to. 
these are truths that we need to be reminded of every day. To remember the things which we feel we cannot survive without are things we indeed can survive without. You know, I travel a lot, and when I travel, I like to be connected. That means having access to the internet. Uh, I'm busy, and often uh, those times at the airport and in the plane offers me the opportunity to clear a lot of things. You know, I'm one of those guys who won't buy any souvenirs on the trip that I'm traveling on, but I'll be one of those that buys the expensive internet on the airplane. People like me, they make their money from. As you know, I recently went to the U.S., and I had an 18-hour flight from Hong Kong to JFK with a technical stopover in Vancouver. I was looking forward uh, to an 18-hour flight because I realized I could get a lot of stuff done. I was horrified to learn when I stepped into the plane when I asked that the plane would not have Wi-Fi access. The flight attendant apologized and said, because of a last-minute change, we got an older aircraft, and it was not equipped with Wi-Fi or Internet. I literally panicked inside. I said, how will I survive? 18 hours is almost a day. I have emails to write. I have people to respond to. I have things to do. I seriously at that moment considered taking a later flight just to be on a plane where I would have internet access, not to be cut off from the so-called outside world for almost a day. But I had an appointment in North Carolina and I had to take that plane. Well, guess what? I did survive. The first few hours, I got a bit antsy, wondering what has happened in life that I was not aware of. I was not able to check into what everyone was doing on Facebook, on Instagram. And you get a little bit anxious. What did I miss out? Especially with these new algorithms that they have, we may not see the things that we need to see. But you know, as I stepped off the plane in New York almost a day later, my life was no worse for not having internet access. What did I do? And I just often during that trip stared into the clouds, thinking about how big my God was, realizing how small I am, having a moment with God for a few hours actually, realizing how much I had missed Him. And the quiet, beautiful experience that comes when you cut off all of the distractions to simply spend time with Him. We can survive without the gadgets and the internet. We can survive without the things that we feel we can't survive without. And the spiritual discipline reminds us that we come with nothing, we leave with nothing. And if nothing bookends our life, then why are we working so hard to accumulate things which will only own us and weigh us down. The third principle, look at verse 8 with me. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul tells Timothy, as long as you have food and clothing, that's all you need in life. Here he gives the essentials of what we need to survive in this world. You need food and you need clothing. Clothing being used in the general sense of protection from the elements, so that includes the idea of shelter. Food, clothing, covering shelter. What else do you need? And here in verse 8 is our third principle. Number three, the essentials of life. Food and a covering. If any of your teenagers 
ever come to you and say, I must have this. If I don't have this, I can't survive. You turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. You better underline this in your Bible verses. And you say, no, the Bible says these are all the things we really need. Everything else is but a luxury. You see, when we come to this decision of whether it's something we need or something we want, we have to pass it through this biblical grid to answer whether you really need it or just something that you want. So if I were to ask you this morning, answer honestly, do you really need a car? I wonder why you don't answer. Because you know that the answer should be no, but you want to answer yes. And you want to argue with me, well, because, Pastor, back in those days when 1 Timothy was written, cars were not yet invented. No. As we talked about last week, the Bible is timeless truths for all cultures and all generations. Do you need a car? The answer is no. How will I survive? Well, you can walk. You can take the dreaded public transportation. But my point is this, for you not to sell your cars... But to give you the attitude, then why complain about the current car that you have that may not have all of the bells and whistles that someone else's car has? Do you really need a smartphone? Do you really need a cell phone? The answer is no. It's real easy. You can always borrow a phone, get your news free from the newspaper at the library or watch television. The point is... So why then do we complain that we don't have the Note 10 or the latest iPhone? Now, I can't peer into your closets and I don't know what you have, but do you really need 20 pairs of shoes? Do you really need 30 dresses? Do you really need 50 different outfits? And I know our Filipino-Chinese context. You say, yes, pastor, we need all of those things because everyone in our community is watching whether we will wear the same thing within the same month. I know our society. Horror the thought that we would wear the same thing within a given week. So we need variety. So no one will think we're poor. It's funny, when I look at the stuff that's being donated to the garage sale, and thank you, of course, for your generosity, I look at these beautiful ball gowns. And uh, they're beautiful. And when you find out the history, they've only been worn once. And I know how expensive it is to uh, couture them and to make them. And I've often wondered, why don't they wear it again? Because, you know, in our society, horror the thought that they were to be photographed in the same dress within a six-month period. As if people remember, well, some people do, what we wear. So we get caught up in this, and the Bible doesn't speak about this. The Bible gives us the essence in verse 8, and yet we're so worried. You know, it's interesting. uh, People like uh, billionaire Richard Branson, uh, if you ever look at pictures of him in the newspaper, he always wears the same thing. Uh, His wardrobe consists of a couple of pair of jeans and a few white shirts. He was interviewed on British media. He says, I wear the same pair of jeans every day. He's a billionaire, entrepreneur. He said, no matter the occasion, whatever I'm doing, whether it's a speech or whether it's to see the queen, you know, Whatever it is, it simplifies my life. Especially when I'm traveling, he added, I don't have to pack very much. Now, Branson isn't the only highly successful individual who maintains what we call a minimalist closet. 
Mark Zuckerberg and even the former president Barack Obama are among the notable people who routinely wear the same thing. You know Zuckerberg, the better Facebook, always wears his signature gray t-shirt. During a public question and answer session in 2014, he was asked why he said these words. I really want to clear my life to make it so that I have to make as few decisions as possible about anything except how best to serve this community. I feel like I'm not doing my job if I spend any of my energy on things that are silly or frivolous about my life. In his mind, the selecting of what to wear every day was silly and frivolous. And then there's President Barack Obama in his suits. He said, you will see that I only wear gray and blue suits, told Vanity Fair in 2012. I try to pare down decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I have too many other decisions to make. He writes, you need to focus your decision-making energy. You need to routinize yourself. You can't be going through the day distracted by the trivial. We Christians today have been distracted by the trivial, so worried about the decisions we make, about so-called essentials, but are really non-essentials of life, and then we wonder why we don't have time for God. Now you say, well, pastor, you used all examples of men. Men can get away wearing the same thing, not women. Well, take Matilda Call, VP of Sony Music, who wore the same white shirt and black pantsuit combination to work every day for four years. In an interview with CNBC, she says, I did it because I realized how much time and energy I could save during my workday by just taking out the clothing aspect. Now, we don't have to take it from these guys. That's their own personal preference, you say, about the decisions they make about clothes. That's true. But the Bible has been sharing these truths for centuries because it is the Word of God. If we only take time to read it, he says very clearly, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Food and shelter, nothing else should really worry us. These are the essentials of the physical life. That's how we can live simply. Our fourth principle can be found in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Here's that famous verse. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Here Paul gives a warning to avoid a trap that befalls many men and women. And that is mankind's desire to be rich. The drive for more material wealth has led many to fall into temptation, doing things that are against the law. It has caused people to leave the practice of the Christian faith. It has brought destruction in one's own life. You see, money itself intrinsically is amoral. It's neither good nor evil, but how it's used, the pursuit of it, how it's gained, that's where it becomes a spiritual issue. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The pursuit of it will invariably and inevitably lead to a trap. And that trap, look at the words used by Paul, will lead to sorrow. How many stories can I tell you about the pursuit of 
more money, the love of it, leading to broken families, broken relationships, and the sorrow that it brings, destruction, punishment, perdition. Now, how do we counteract this pull towards the temptation to be rich? And that's to live simply in contentment. You see, in verse 9 to verse 10, our fourth principle can be extrapolated. And the fourth principle is a warning to remember to live simply because it will lead to our destruction if we don't. It's a warning. You see, the pursuit of something will lead you to very dark places in your life because you will be so desperate to want to accomplish it, to have it, that somehow fantasy becomes reality and that which you cannot attain and never can attain will drive you literally mad. Let me give you an example. When I was young, uh, I collected as one of my hobbies sports cards. Baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards, hockey cards. I don't know if card collecting of sports figures made its way here to the Philippines in the late 80s. I would go to the store and buy packs of sports cards and open up to see which players I got. And uh, we would try to complete sets, my friends and I. And these were the days before the internet. And so on a Saturday afternoon, we would gather with friends and we would lay out all of our cards and we would have a bartering session. We would trade cards to try to complete sets. Uh, I guess to put it in your context today, it's like collecting Pokemon cards and you just need a Pikachu. And so you, you ask your friends what animals you can, or Pokemons you can trade to get certain cards. Uh, I'm not into it, but uh, I think that's what um, you guys are into right now. I remember that uh, I needed one particular card, the only card left, to complete a set. And my friend had multiples of it. Right? If you have multiples of cards, uh, ethics demands that you trade it to your friend. But for whatever reason, my friend wanted to keep multiples of that card, the one card I needed to complete my set. And so uh, I, I begged him. I literally begged and offered, I'll trade you know, 20 cards for that one card. I'll buy that card from you because there was no guarantee that buying a sports pack and opening it up would give you the card that you needed to complete the set. But for whatever reason, every week he said no. You know how it is when you just need something so badly, you begin to obsess over it, that one card that will complete myself and I can die happy at the age of 14. Oh well, that's what it is, that's how it was. You know, he just wouldn't for whatever reason. And so in my mind, I thought of ways how I could get this card even to the extent of thinking about ways that I could steal this card from him. Thought about the times when he would leave his binder unattended, going to his home, being invited over, and taking it from him when he was in the bathroom. Told you I was a black sheep. There were a lot of things I was thinking about how to get that card. I tried putting on niceties on him and trying to be sweet and sweet talk to him. Oh, come on, we've been friends for so long. You know, I'll make it up to you to become very mean and reminding him of all the things I did for him and how he owed me one. If you don't get my back this time, I'm not going to get your back and you know how kids are. But he still wouldn't. It took me into a place that wasn't very nice. Thankfully, I never had to steal that card. 
because a few weeks later, I got that specific card to complete my set uh, when I bought a package of a sports car at a store. But I remember this incident decades later when today because of the lengths I was willing to go just to get something I so wanted that wasn't mine. And this is exactly the temptation and the snare and the pit that Paul is talking about that drives men and women to go to lengths to try to get what they cannot have. And that's why pornography is so dangerous. Because pornography, you can say, is just looking. It doesn't hurt anyone. But it puts your mind into a world of fantasy where the more you watch it, the more you desire that fantasy to be reality. And the good things you have in life somehow are no longer as good as, as it once was, and you want to have what you cannot have. Or gambling, being addicted to it, thinking, you know what? That next pool, that next card will win me all my money back and more. We can go down the list of what happens when men and women fall into this trap of desiring that which they cannot have because they weren't content with the good things that God had given them. But living simply, being content with what you and I have, takes the edge off of it. Will it be okay in your life if you don't have that one card that doesn't complete your set? Would you be okay? Would you be okay if you don't have the newest car, but the car you drive is 20 years old? Would you be okay with the wonderful family that God has given you? And the spiritual discipline of living simply, both in attitude and in practice, will personally benefit you because it takes the edge off of the desire to fall into a trap that many have. Now, you may say, well, Pastor, thank you for giving us the theoretical. Now, what's the practical? Well, I want to present four questions that you can ask daily as you pursue something or as you want to buy something or that which you hold on to, you can assess. I don't know if you're familiar with Marie Kondo. She is uh, kind of this Netflix organizational guru. And a lot of people have kind of bought into her, the lifestyle that uh, she advocates for, kind of this Zen minimalistic, uh, uncluttering your life, tidying your life sort of aspect. And there's some practical examples about it. But she has six rules for how to kind of get rid of stuff. And the last rule is, does it spark joy? Right? I'm not sure if I want to get rid of it. Does it spark? If it gives me joy, I'm going to keep it. If it doesn't give me joy, I can get rid of it. And that sounds good on paper, but is that really how we are to live? Because if a new car brings me joy, then I should be able to pursue it according to her rules. If a new wife brings me joy, then that's what I'm going to pursue. Here's the problem. Joy is subjective and it's relative and it's never consistent. And it's not what is taught in the scripture does it bring you joy or not? There are many things in the Christian life that doesn't bring joy, but we are still to live it out. So instead of her basic rules for uncluttering your life, let me give you four questions from the Bible about how we are to unclutter our life. First question, verse 11. But you, O man of God, 
Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Paul begins this verse by telling the believer, oh man of God, that's why we know he's talking to a believer, flee, get away from the love of material things. Don't pursue titles, don't pursue positions, don't pursue money, property. Pursue qualities like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Pursue desiring to be more Christ-like. Pursue the spiritual, which is what you really need. You see, applicationally, what we can extrapolate from this verse is the question, number one, do I really need it? Do I really need it, or is it something I want? Another way to put it, is it a necessity, or is it a luxury? And if you aren't sure whether it's a necessity or a luxury, go back to verse 8. The Bible will tell you what are the two things that are the essentials of living a life, and the rest are literally all luxuries. This question, do I really need it? will help you live a life of simplicity. As God says, pursue that which is worth pursuing. Flee from those things which you really don't need. I had a friend who sent their children to one of the most exclusive private schools in Texas. The tuition for a year is 1.5 million pesos for one child. And that's in kindergarten. I have no idea how you can pay so much money for playtime in kindergarten, but that's how much it costs at an exclusive private school. As their children grew up in this school, I just knew that they would graduate from this exclusive school. And so it was a complete surprise to me when they pulled their children in grade eight, after the oldest got to grade eight, out of the school, and then sent them to regular public school in the neighborhood. I was curious. I asked why. Why did you pull your kids out? And here was the reply to me. We spend all of our money to give our children the best opportunities in life. Because if they made it to this exclusive public school with all of the support structures, they for sure would have the best opportunity to be able to go to the, some of the best universities in America. In this exclusive school, they would be able to hobnob with the rich and famous of society for future business connections, which is some of the filtering we use for the schools we send our kids I said, those are wonderful things, then why did you pull them out? They said, we pulled them out because we didn't like what our child was becoming because of the environment. Our children were becoming snobbish. They were becoming bratty. They were becoming ungrateful. And we realized they don't really need to go to an exclusive private school. We would rather have our children grow up to have a good moral character molded in the ways of Jesus than to have lots of rich friends. You see, even in something like education, we've got to ask ourselves the question, considering everything, is this something we need or it's something we want just so that we can keep up with the society that is around us? This question puts what is important to the forefront, and we need to ask it every day. The second question, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here Paul encourages Timothy and those reading the letter to fight the good fight of faith, persevere, hold on to the eternal things, hold on to eternal life. 
the things which you acknowledge in your life and the things which you have professed to the world that you have eternal life in Jesus. Now this question that is being extrapolated from verse 12 applicationally is this. Number two, does it have eternal value? The things that I'm pursuing, the things that I want, does it have eternal value? You see, if I confess with my life and with my mouth that I have eternal life with the Lord forever in heaven, and I proclaim it to my family, and I proclaim it to my, to my friends, and I proclaim it to the world, should that not affect the decisions of your everyday life? You have told the world that you are living for eternity. You have eternal life. You will live forever with the Lord in heaven. If that is now how you are going to live, should your actions also exemplify to the world that it does? Do what I pursue and what I want have an eternal value? If it does not, maybe I should not buy it. Maybe I should not embark on this endeavor. It may mean doing less. It may mean owning less. But at least it focuses and aligns me on my end goal, which is when I leave this present world with nothing, as all of us will leave this present world with nothing, that I will enter into glory, into eternal life with something waiting for me. You see, if we say that we live for the eternal and we have eternal life, we ask our question, does it have eternal value? Because when I leave this earth again, hammering in the point, you and I leave with nothing from this present life, but in the next life to come, how much have you accumulated for the life to come? It would be sad if we've accumulated so much in this life only to leave it behind and then somehow be surprised that we have nothing in terms of rewards waiting for us when we get to heaven. And this question frees us from the anxiety of having to live up to others' expectation for how we are to live. Because now I'm only concerned about God's expectation of me. And it allows me to develop an internal simplicity which can be expressed in outward simple living. So I'm not going to care if someone comments, hey, pastor, you wore the same tie last week. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things, in the eternal, what I wore last week. It doesn't matter what I wore yesterday. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of eternity if I'm driving a 20-year-old car, or if I have the newest model car. It just really doesn't. But we are so caught up in the anxiety of trying to live up to the expression of other family members, and holidays are terrible at that, because families get together after not seeing each other for the longest of times, and they begin to compare, but they do it in a family way. Comparing kids comparing accomplishments. It's a dangerous game to play. But if you can ask and live out the question that my life's pursuit is about the eternal, you can have all the accomplishments you want on earth. I know my pursuit. 
Because at the end of the day, we leave with nothing. Look at verse 13 to 16, the third question. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Here in verses 13 to 16, it talks about keeping the faith, living for the Lord. And the reason we do so is because God is so amazing. Compared to our inconsequential life, God is so amazing we should live for Him. Verse 13 talks about He is the one who alone gives life to all things, the sustainer of life. In verses 15 to 16, it talks about His majesty, His sovereignty, the unapproachable power, the honor that belongs only to Him. And so this begs the question, what do we pursue? And the third question that these verses bring to mind is the question, does it bring glory to God? Does it bring glory to God? You know, we make our lives very complex. We filter our lives through relationships, through emotions, through decisions, through the nuances of our field chai culture, read between the lines, trying to understand what's not spoken. And yet God said, it's real simple. Glorify me. I'm worthy, I'm deserving of it. And that's what Paul is reminding Timothy. I love verse 16, who alone his immortality dwelling in the unapproachable light. If God does not allow, we can't even come before His presence to whom be honor and everlasting power. It is Him who we need to glorify. And so the question, does it bring glory to God, simplifies our life. It's not about does it bring joy into my life, as Kondo would advocate. Is it does it bring glory to God? It's about him. It's not about us. As Mary Gregory says in her book, Plain Living, A Quaker's Path to Simplicity. Simplicity does not mean getting rid of all your possessions, but rather integrating them into your life's purpose. If your life's purpose and my life's purpose is to glorify God, then that which we pursue in this life is all about him. It makes life very simple. Verse 17 to 19, the fourth question. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in certain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation, note this, for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. These verses do not teach that after we leave this place, we get rid of everything. It doesn't teach that we can't have nice things. The Bible says the living God gives us richly for us to enjoy. God is a gracious God. But the point is that as a reminder to those who have not to put their trust in the riches and material wealth, 
but to put their trust in the Lord. This is the theme echoed throughout scriptures. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth at the same time. You can only pick one to trust. But it is the Lord who is the giver of all things. And I like that little phrase I want to point out here in verse 17. In this present age. Because that means just because you are rich now doesn't mean you will be rich in the life to come. How God dispenses His blessing in the present world, we don't understand. We like it at a scale based on the zeros in our bank account, but it doesn't work like that. God may give you lots of money, but you may have a sickness. God may not give you lots of money, but He gives you the blessing of a child. What and how he dispenses of his grace, it's up to him. But the Bible tells us he gives it to us richly for us to enjoy. But the emphasis in verses 18 and 19 is that which he's given us, the resources, we are to lay up treasures in heaven by doing and using them as good stewards here on this earth. You see, we can either use wealth to bring us closer to God or away from him. And you filter your actions through this question, does it bring me closer to the Lord or away from Him? That is the fourth question. Does it bring me closer to the Lord or away from Him? If I buy this new boat, Chinese people don't buy boats. Americans do. It is just simply a waste of investment. But let's say you, you buy a yacht, if you can afford one. How much time would you spend on it that you can spend doing other things. Does what I strive for and purchase and live for, does it bring me closer to the Lord or away from Him? That's a dangerous question. Because for some of you, that means getting rid of your Netflix subscription. That's how practical it gets. But it's up to you. God sees all. He knows what's up. That means saying no to certain things, even Christian ministry, if serving and volunteering pulls you away from the Lord. And that's part of the simplifying process in your life, to clearing up the spiritual and the material clutter so that you can walk intimately with the Lord, filtering the things that you pursue with the question, does it bring me closer to the Lord or does it push me away? Again, that does not mean you do not pursue wonderful things for the Lord to the best of your ability for His glory. It doesn't mean you can't purchase nice things for you to enjoy as God has enabled it. But it is a wonderful boundary protection so that we don't begin to place trust in that which we shouldn't and begin to look at things in such a way to filter out whether it brings us closer to Him or not. And if you ask these questions every day, maybe you can blow it up and post it on your wall, I don't know. It would certainly remind us that we are not first in this world. God is. We live for His glory. We live for His glory. I end with the words of Christian Snyder. He writes these words. They are, wise words. Simplicity is not so much about what we own, 
It's about what owns us. Did you get that? Simplicity or living simply is not so much about what we own, but about what owns us, what ties us down. If we need lots of possessions to maintain our self-esteem and create our self-image and to look good to our neighbors, then we have forgotten and neglected that which is real and inward. Listen carefully. If our time, money, and energy are consumed in selecting, acquiring, maintaining, cleaning, moving, improving, replacing, dusting, storing, using, showing off, and talking about our possessions, then there is little time, money, and energy left for other more worthwhile pursuits, such as the work we are called to do to further the kingdom of God. Wise words. If our time, money, and energy are consumed in selecting, acquiring, maintaining, cleaning, moving, improving, replacing, dusting, storing, using, showing off, and talking about our possessions, we wonder why we don't have time for the Lord. It's time to declutter our lives. It's time to live simply to remind us that this world has no hold on us, that we are to live for His glory in this life so that when we leave this world with nothing, we enter the next with everything. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a stark reminder even for me as a pastor. One day you will call us home. And we can't bring our accomplishments and our bank accounts with us. We can only present before you our lives and only the accomplishments we've done in your name. May we be a simple church made up of simple people whose simplicity is not in their minimalistic lifestyle, but a simplicity that comes from a contentment that pervades every attitude and every life here. May it be that we ask these filtering questions so that we will not clutter our life with useless things that bring us no eternal value. But we open up our lives to then be able to work on your behalf so that the treasures we lay up in heaven, which will last forever, will be great. May your word continue to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.